Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Radio Show with Richard Talk to Me Guy. And Sherry Edwards is off working at, on the soundhealthportal.com. If you go to Sound Health Portal, particularly with what we're going to talk with Dr. Harch today about, uh, you might want to review Sherry's observations of the coronavirus and but I believe that it's still one of the campaigns such as BioDiet or neuroplasticity or PTSD and others where you can submit a vocal print, which means you sign up for a free account, just your email address. You choose the campaign you'd like to run like Corona conflicts or neuroplasticity or BioDiet. Always good to know what's going on and how your body is assimilating foods. Sign up and then the system will walk you through doing two 45 second recordings You'll submit those, and you get back a report with lots of information in two to, I think the most I've ever waited really is about 10 hours. But usually within a couple of hours, you get a report back with a lot of information. I suggest sitting down, having a cup of tea, and reviewing it. It's a great resource of showing you things that are too high or too low or where there might be an imbalance, something you didn't think about. I'm, I'm very happy that the Sound Health Portal exists online. We used to have to haul around laptop computers and do it that way. Now we can just, well, I carry around a Samsung, S-A-M-S-O-N, Go mic, which is a little pocket mic, which is also great to improve audio quality on everybody on Zoom, since everybody's Zooming or webinaring or meeting up or FaceTiming, or I'm not sure what all those are. The Samsung Go mic is really handy because you can put it on any computer and improve your audio quality, and it's really great for doing vocal profiling because it's a good quality mic for such a small portable device. It's really one of my favorite pocket devices. I would also remind people that if you go to soundhealthoptions.com, click on Sound Health Radio, that at the top of that page, you'll find the flyer for today's show and the link back to the show notes which I also have put in the show notes, the show from last week with Dr. Harch, the precursor to our conversation today. So there's a lot of information there in that show that's a good reference point to where we're going to start today. So that's in the show notes and available. Also at the top of that page, you can see links for either Stitcher or Pocket Casts, both great podcast aggregators. And you can click on, I prefer Pocket Casts, You click on Pocket Cast and it'll open a page with this show at the top. Usually within about 30 minutes to an hour after we end the show, you hear the outro music. You'll be able to listen to the replay there. And with Pocket Cast, I believe Stitcher does this as well. With Pocket Cast, I think it's on the right-hand side, you'll see three dots. And if you click on those three dots, whatever device you're listening to, you can listen to it on a computer or on any of the phones. And you click on the three dots and you'll be able to share this show with other people that may not be here now that you know that you're going to want to hear this information. So that's Stitcher or Pocket Casts. And with that, Dr. Harch is a world-renowned leading expert in hyperbaric medicine. Using his 30-plus years of HBOT experience, Dr. Harch administers the most scientifically based and precise treatment plans. He's responsible for the largest documented improvements in brain injury and neurological cases treating patients with HBOT. Beginning with brain-injured divers and boxers in 1989, he applied his protocol to the first HBOT-treated cerebral palsy in autistic children in this country, as well as multiple other cerebral disorders. 
including most recently the first PET-documented Alzheimer's case and a subacute drowned child. He wrote The Oxygen Revolution, a book explaining the science of HBOT and how it affects various neurological conditions. Dr. Harch presented his clinical experience and research four times to the U.S. Congress and has been nominated for the NIH Director's Pioneer Award. He has a private HBOT practice and is director of the University Medical Center Hyperbaric Medicine Department and clinical professor of medicine, section of emergency medicine at LSU School of Medicine in New Orleans. Dr. Harch joins us to discuss the oxygen revolution and his recent research on HBOT and application to coronavirus. Welcome, Dr. Harch. Thank you. Great to be back. Let's start back at the Spanish flu. What are the similarities between corona and the Spanish flu? Well, they're respiratory viruses and primarily affect the lungs and induce uh, intense inflammatory reaction in the lungs that in some people overwhelms them and leads to death. Um, and uh, pretty much they are very similar illnesses. Uh, so, that, But it turns out that Spanish flu had a, a much greater mortality than at least coronavirus appears to have. Uh, in fact, at least three times the mortality rate or more, uh, and uh, a much greater mortality than even swine flu or seasonal flu. Wow. And what did they use? I feel like, it, I feel like it's a game show. And doctor, what did they use in 1918 for the Spanish flu? Nothing. <laughs> One of the things. Nothing. They had nothing. Wow. Uh, they had nothing. But uh, the one therapy, which unfortunately did not get disseminated nor popularized, was the application of hyperbaric oxygen. So the very first patient treated with hyperbaric therapy in the United States was in 1918, and it was a dying Spanish flu patient in Kansas City. And I think I briefly mentioned it last time. Uh and they describe this patient in both uh, books and a medical journal article as cyanotic blue and almost taking his last breaths. And within just uh, a couple minutes of putting this patient in the chamber, increasing the pressure, and they just used pressurized air at that time because oxygen wasn't yet available in bulk to administer like this. Um, this patient was resi uh, revived. Over the course of approximately four to five days, they gave him an additional four or five treatments once a day and saved him. In other words, it uh, was able to bridge a patient over this most critical part of the illness. And sh shortly thereafter, they brought another patient, similar condition, and another and another. And pretty soon, uh, the use of this chamber just blossomed. Uh, in a very short period of time, treating a fair number of Spanish flu patients. And that was just, that was, so that was just pressurized ambient air. That wasn't even medical grade Correct. oxygen. That, wow. Correct. Wow. And it was, you know, there is a, there are two components to hyperbaric therapy. There's the oxygen component and there is the pressure component. And there may actually be a third in that 
you know, the normally nitrogen, which is 75% of our atmosphere, uh, at least breathing air at, at sea level, 75% or 79% is nitrogen, and it's considered to be inert. However, there may be an effect of nitrogen when you pressurize it. So all that can be said is when you pressurize air, uh, you pressurize all the gases in it. And we clearly know that the oxygen component has benefit, um, but the hydrostatic pressure has an additional effect, and it may be that the nitrogen also has some mm. effect. Interestingly, when I talked to the Chinese doctors in Wuhan who treated the first coronavirus patients, um, and my conversations with them uh, were in March, a very excited part of the conversation was when I informed them that hyperbaric medicine in the United States had its debut with dying Spanish flu patients and that they had just used compressed air, not the 100% oxygen that the Chinese were using. And there was this frenzied, excited discussion then with the translator by the Chinese hyperbaric physician that she had noticed that when they pressurized the patients, some of them who either didn't have their mask on, they were not in the chamber with them, the Chinese uh, hyperbaric technicians, attendants, physicians. They were in a separate locked uh, compartment of the hyperbaric chamber where they could enter if they needed to, if there was a problem, but they essentially maintained infection isolation by being in a separate compartment. So they would load the patients in, put them on their masks, and then go out of the chamber, put them on the mask and continue their oxygen, go out of the chamber, and then they would pressurize the patients in that segment of the chamber. And she said that when the masks had come off or they didn't maintain them, that the patients appeared to get a similar benefit. And what she was almost shouting at the translator was that she had firmly believed that the pressure had something to do with it. Similarly, when the mask came off on some patients while they were in the chamber and they didn't put it on, they maintained the benefit they, they had seen already after compression and receiving some oxygen. So uh, there appears to be two components to this, and the pressurized air seemed to work uh, on these patients in, with the Spanish flu back in 1918. Wow. Wow. Um, now, the pressure they had to achieve, though, just as a caveat, was much right. higher than, uh, I mean, uh, it's what you have to have uh, pretty much a, a hard shell chamber to deliver. Um, and even at the level they were at, the amount of oxygen that they received by that pressurization was only roughly 70% more than what they were receiving, uh, just breathing room air outside the chamber. So it, it wasn't a dramatic uh, amount. You can think, you know, in the hospital right now, when the coronavirus patients go on oxygen by mask, they put them on what's called a non-rebreather mask so that you're breathing 100% oxygen. And that's even greater than the amount that these Spanish flu patients got in 1918. But the addition of the pressure, the hyperbaric part, it yes. helped. It, I, I think I have this correctly, but I want to make sure it's really that it's not just forcing it into our lungs. It's actually, it's also getting it into our tissues. So it's, it's not Correct. completely making it so that our lungs have to do the work. Our tissues are actually able to get pressurized oxygen into them. 
Is that right? Well, it is. Yes, because that that increased pressure of oxygen is in the blood. It ends up transferring from our air sacs and our lungs to the blood in the lungs and from which it's taken to the rest of the body at an elevated pressure in the blood. And then it's able to be delivered to tissues very easily. Hmm. And why, I, I was going to save this for later, but I have to ask now, why is it that it seems that doctors don't seem to appreciate the idea of oxygen blood levels? I know you write about this in an article in Medical Gas Research. It just seems like it's, it's something they don't understand, or what am I missing? Uh that is a, a fair amount of it, um, but the, I believe the bigger part is what we talked about a little bit last time is that my generation, and you look at what I was taught by my junior resident at Johns Hopkins Medical School, University School of Medicine, was that this was an unscientific, fraudulent therapy, and yet it was grounded in such science, and the problem was that the hyperbaric physicians, even to this day, have not understood their own therapy enough to explain it to the rest of the medical profession and allow them to understand exactly what was going on. So it's remained an enigma. And doctors, before they want to refer patients to any type of therapy, put them on a medicine even, they want to know how it works so that they're comfortable uh, prescribing and or referring something. And when you don't, and in the absence of that critical information, uh, articles get published and there's debate about them and the hyperbaric physicians can't defend exactly what's going on. It became discredited. And once mm. someone has a belief system, and whatever it is, it is very, very difficult to reverse that. And I think that is the major problem. Uh, and again, going back to what I mentioned, I think last time was that 75% of medical schools teach nothing about hyperbaric medicine and hyperbaric oxygen therapy. It's kind of always been left to the U S Navy, uh, from their diving roots. And now it's in the kind of wound care field as a tool. And does, and does the, is the action of the oxygen in the wound healing explained in such a way that the doctor's, accept it or are they seeing the result and the result because i've had burns so wound healing is a gnarly process and yes. is it because they're getting results that they're willing to accept that the results and they don't completely understand the how or is there something that they've gone oh we see how the action of how it's working and we accept that uh it's both and then it's okay. reimbursed by insurance companies medicare and medicaid but it is a huge step to to then understand that it can heal a foot wound, why couldn't it heal a brain wound? And that then gets into another major impasse or block in the field of medicine, which is somewhere around 30, 40 years ago, a little bit more actually, it, it became somewhat ingrained in the neurology specialty that the brain is so much different from the rest of the organs in the body that there's nothing you can do for it to alter the course of disease, such as trauma or stroke. 
uh, any neurological disease, the brain has to heal itself, has to take its own course, time heals, you know, all of these kind of cliched statements. And they've become, had become, it's changing now, the other direction, but almost foundation tenets. So when hyperbaric oxygen then started to be applied to neurological applications, you ran up against this this monolith of resistance by the neurology specialty that there is nothing that could be done, that brain cells are either alive or dead. There is no intermediate state. And the contention and claims of the hyperbaric medicine physicians were completely fraudulent, non-scientific. And now there's just a pile of information to the opposite. Wow. That's a whole other conversation. That's another show in the pile of shows that we're going to be doing. I can just tell it is. It is. I'll set that over there because that's a whole conversation about dogma. Dogma is a very tricky thing. I learned that from Bruce Lipton. Well, that's yes, dogma thing. and attitude. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what kind of physicians then are attracted to each specialty when you know that, let's say, there's no treatment for most diseases in your specialty. What, what doctors... Uh, do you attract? You attract diagnosticians, uh, you know, to a large extent and, uh, you know, other characteristics of, of the specialty to where now you've got a specialty with a belief system. And it's very difficult to reverse that, especially when you're a non-neurologist. So, yeah, mm. a large conversation. Okay. Uh, back to... Corona, because <laughs> I really yes. want to dive into that. But let's go back to Corona. Yeah. How does Corona compare to such things as MERS or SARS or Zika or other respiratory viral epidemics? It, it's actually nowhere near as bad as some of the other epidemics. For instance, MERS is, oh, let's see, over... 10 times the mortality. Same with bird flu. Actually, bird flu is up around uh, 20 to maybe 25 times the mortality. Ebola is 20 times the mortality. Uh, The Spanish flu, as I mentioned before, is at least three times uh, as deadly as coronavirus. And the SARS virus, similarly, was almost identical to Spanish flu. And I'm I'm taking this from this really incredible slide that uh, Dr. Kailing Perez, K-I-A-L-I-N-G, and I want to make sure I credit him with this, showed at a webinar that was put on by the Undersea and Hyperbaric Medical Society on coronavirus and hyperbaric oxygen last Saturday. Uh, Dr. Kailing Perez, and in his slide deck, the most impactful slide was this one comparing coronavirus to uh, all of these other epidemics and pandemics. Uh, so as a respiratory infectious agent, it's not as bad as some of them that we've had. Um, and it's not even, it, it's about the same infectiveness. In other words, uh, an infected person, uh, how many other people will they infect? It's somewhere between two and three uh, with the coronavirus, uh, which polio is three, the common cold is about two, two and a half. Seasonal flu is a little over one. Spine flu, about two. Chicken pox, eight. Uh, 
uh, hmm. with chickenpox infects about eight others. Measles, 15 others. Smallpox, wow. about five. And then some of the really, really deadly ones, uh, Ebola, two other people, bird flu, one, MERS, less than one. So coronavirus is down in this lower range, really, um, and its mortality similarly is not as bad. And the only thing I can make sense out of this, well, there are two things, uh, but I think primarily one of them, without getting into the whole debate about vaccines, is that every year the invalid population, uh, those with comorbidities, the elderly, the youngest, end up with a flu vaccine, which has on average oh, 30, 40% effectiveness, but there's enough protection there that we don't see the mortality that we see with coronavirus, for instance. Um, and I think that's partly what seems to separate this. Coronavirus is a little more infective than seasonal flu, but, uh, and the mortality is greater. Uh, but it's mainly affecting all of elderly and the people with uh, the comorbidities, which are largely obesity-related diagnoses, diabetes, hypertension, uh, and just people who are overweight, which is now two-thirds of the American population. But of those, the elderly seem to be the most uh, frail and uh, you know, it's it's kind of a natural selection process, unfortunately, which leads to the message of all of this, which is, well, this is kind of a wake up and it's not being discussed. We really, as a population, uh, need to, to get our health in order and uh, lose weight, uh, become more fit, you know, alter our diet, et cetera, because that's who is being penalized in this epidemic, yeah. pandemic. Well, and that's why I've been doing a number of shows, and that's why I wanted to have you back, where I, I've been talking a lot about how, how to have a healthy immune system. And for yes. me, it's not just about taking your vitamin C and other supplements. It's about no. your attitude. It's about not being in a state of fear. It's the whole package. That's why it's – because I'm more of a, a thinker of the whole system. That's why it yes. surprises me as we have the conversation of, like, of doctors not getting, oh, look – the TBI person is better after HBOT. No, there's right. no research to validate that. It's not true. He couldn't possibly be better. Come on, he's better. Um, yes. So it, it's just a different way of thinking. And it's, yeah. it just seems to be like, is it, is, this is not part of your view, but you've been doing this for decades. Is it just kind of the, a bad crossroads of timing in the sense of the health condition of the world and this virus coming out at the same time? It seems like it's a, a some sort of crossroads of something. I, I'm making this up, kind of, but I mean, wow. Uh, yes. I mean, it's a pretty infectious agent with a higher mortality for which there is no, uh, or I should say, limited immune protection. And you're dependent on a healthy immune system to fight this. And that's what the statistics at least are showing. It addresses balance in life. It's like the, uh, uh, the, the temple at Delphi and the oracle. 
there, the inscriptions on the temple, uh, know thyself and everything in moderation. So it is uh, proper food, uh, diet, exercise, relationships, work. Um, it, it's everything, all of the components, trying to balance them to have a moderated life and, and a healthy mind and body. Uh, and that's the best protection uh, against any immune invader or immune system challenge. Uh, and th- that's the problem right now is that uh, you can even look at the different populations that seem to be differentially affected. Uh, various minority populations. Oh, I'm sorry about the phone. There. That's okay. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, there's quite a bit of obesity related disease and uh, diabetes, hypertension, and so on uh, mm-hmm. in those populations that differentially affects them. Yeah. And so I'm going to go back to Corona now. I can see what, yes. what this will wander throughout the whole conversation is you started out with what I will call a theorem of HBOT benefits to Corona patients, meaning that you, you had the idea because of your decades of experience with HBOT, you had this theorem that there'd be HBOT. I, I'm kind of thinking of this about from the dogmatic medical paradigm yes. thinking, kind of thinking we have a theorem. Here's this idea. Now we're going to prove this theorem. And you, between a combination of, I mean, you've, you've done a, boatload of research and found validation to your theorem. Am I missing something here? Isn't that all true? You had a theorem and you went out and gone, look, this is happening. Yes? Pretty much. Uh, (laughs) Mic drop. Well, that's that's what happened. It was understanding this therapy and the really a more complete understanding of it didn't even happen to me until 2011. I mean, I have struggled. It started with my first introduction to this therapy and trying to understand what was going on in divers with brain decompression sickness. It took about five years to sort that out because it was not discussed in a scientific fashion much in the diving medicine literature. Uh, And so uh, over the years, then finally in 2011, understanding this therapy as a a two, maybe three component therapy, pressure, oxygen, and the type of gas, other gases that are involved. Um, And then realizing way back in 2000, oh, I don't know, in 94, when the first article got published on this, that what we're doing is a, this is a gene therapy. We're modulating gene expression. And it has evolutionary roots to it. It just became such a a kind of rich uh, unfolding of information. And finally, applying that to, wait a minute, here we have this lung condition. What's the difference between this and Spanish flu? Uh, They die of the same type of acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, which is all of the discussion about these coronavirus patients. Well, what is the basis of that? It's an intense inflammatory reaction in the lungs. And here is hyperbaric oxygen with its known anti-inflammatory capabilities. And it was likely how it was affecting and saving these Spanish flu patients. 
So to me, it seemed a natural extension and even conclusion that this had every reason in the world that it should apply and be beneficial to coronavirus patients. Then I found an article from, it was information from the 60s where this Russian physician uh, had published in conjunction with some doctors uh, in Israel an article on treating that ARDS in patients who had had chest trauma. So these are the most severely injured trauma patients. It could be from car accidents, a fall, anything. But they have chest trauma that, trauma that ends up kind of shocking the lungs. And they develop, uh, because of the bruising of the lungs and the overall trauma to the patient, they go into ARDS. And these doctors treated these ARDS patients in a hyperbaric chamber at the near identical pressures that Dr. Cunningham treated the Spanish flu and that inadvertently the Chinese treated the coronavirus patients, not knowing of either of these other experiences. And the ARDS blunt trauma patients had 100% survival, where 75% of the ones who did not get the hyperbaric therapy died of the ARDS. And all of this information came about in literally, a, it came to a head in about a 24-hour period. After my wife, as I described, she's just a brilliant person, uh, nurse, uh, knowledgeable about hyperbaric therapy, has been in this field now for over, oh gosh, uh, 20 years, pointed out to me, she said, ask me, what do you think? Shouldn't this have some benefit in the coronavirus patients? And so over a month and a half, we had these discussions beginning in February, actually late January, about what's going on in the lungs. And I think was, look at this. If Spanish flu, it worked for it. Why wouldn't it work? So getting to the conclusion there, yes, I finally put out this idea. You can call it a theorem, but it, to me, it, it just was commonsensical when you put all the pieces together that this should benefit coronavirus patients. And talk about some of the research that you've found. I mean, there are people having results in spite of the fact that there are people that are saying, but where's the research? It works in reality, but what about the, the research? Um, well, there's a lot of information out there. Yes. And more and more accumulating every day. Uh, that's what this webinar was about. We actually, it's the second one. The first one put on by the American College of Hyperbaric Medicine had a physician from Opelousas, Louisiana, presenting his case experience, which was now 11 cases. Dr. Kerry Thibodeau uh, had treated uh, Opelousas, a town near Lafayette, kind of in the center of the state. And um, uh, this last weekend, uh, the Underseen Hyperbaric Medical Society had a webinar where they now brought the group from New York University Winthrop's campus on Long Island, uh, along with Dr. Thibodeau. Um, and the Chinese data was the other experience that is now out there, but they couldn't make it on the webinar. And they presented their now cumulative case experience. And all of this is pointing in the right direction and reaffirming what happened with the Spanish flu and what I had 
saw it would happen with coronavirus patients, that it is decreasing the mortality, uh, potentially keeping them off the ventilator, um, and shortening the course of their disease. And it's mainly addressing, not so much in an antiviral way, like you take an antibiotic. We don't have proof of that yet, but it's mainly addressing, appears to address the inflammatory reaction in the lungs. Mm. And that's where the lifesaver is. And is that because it is the oxygen itself actually an anti-inflammatory or is it because it's supplying oxygen to the tissue so the tissue itself can deflame, so to speak? It is the oxygen and the pressure and or the inert gas pressure, but it's the hydrostatic pressure as well. And this is what has been shown now in a variety of different uh, animal experiments and experiments with human cells that amongst the largest clusters of genes in our cells that are turned on by a single hyperbaric treatment are the anti-inflammatory genes. And amongst the largest clusters of the ones turned off are the pro-inflammatory genes. So uh, at both ends of it, we are inhibiting inflammation by affecting our genes that help control inflammation as well as the actual inflammatory cells. In fact, there are probably so many components of this that we have no idea the breadth of, of the immune system effects. It's just the net effect appears to be one of inhibiting inflammation and the inflammatory reaction in the lung, which causes uh, fluid to be deposited in the lungs, which is the barrier to diffusion of oxygen from the air sacs into the blood of our lungs. Hmm. And I know, I know from, I, I can't remember if I read this or it's from us talking backstage. What are the results oftentimes of people being put on a ventilator? Do they come off it and they're no. okay? No, it's almost like a death sentence. Well, all of the thinking and the evidence points to the ventilator increasing the mortality. And it's due to the increased, interestingly, thought to be, the increased pressure that's delivered with each breath that is having mechanical injurious effects on the lungs, which is totally different from immersing the whole body in an increased pressure environment. When you immerse your entire body in an increased pressure environment, you invoke one of the universal gas laws, Pascal's law, which says that the pressure is equally distributed uniformly throughout instantaneously. And so the actual pressure effect, there is a differential of the gases, but overall the total pressure is at once, you know, the whole body is exposed as opposed to the lungs on a ventilator getting a blast of increased pressure as it forces the air in to help the patient breathe and then a relaxation of it, but then it keeps the lungs open. They usually leave pressure in the airway, leaving the lungs open. And it appears that uh, it is that mechanical distension. And in particular, what they usually do is try to give higher volumes with each breath. And they're finding that that may have been the injurious part, that when they lowered the amount of air with each breath, 
and maybe increase the frequency of the ventilator, uh, that there wasn't as much of an injury. But still, the ventilator overall appears to, to figure into the increased mortality. So the goal is to try, and this is the, the goal we wrote our study for, and which are now being incorporated into uh, multiple studies, is one of the endpoints is how many people or the percentage of people you keep off the ventilator, keep from getting ventilated. Remember also, that was the big scare in New York and countrywide. We don't have enough ventilators. Where are we going to get the ventilators? And next thing you know, I think Tesla and every company that could was ramping up and changing their production to, to make ventilators. But the ventilator is a problem. And of course, and, go ahead. Yeah. No, well, it's the only way. It's the it's just about the last step to to try it uh, even futilely to to get more oxygen into a patient is to help them breathe. And once again, I'm as a dumb old lay person herbalist over here. I'm confused by the idea of just to, as you as we've talked about it. The idea of the ventilator is you're pressurizing oxygen into a tissue that's inflamed, irritated, and highly mucousy because of its irritation, irritated state. And so you're pressurizing oxygen in there into an area that's not receptive necessarily versus the idea of pressurizing it into the whole system so you get the body out of a hypoxic state. So it's more like, wow, I'm kind of feeling slightly better just from this. Am I getting that wrong? Well, no, Slightly. but see, it, it, is, it is an isolated pressure. It's a pressure uh, almost blast to the lungs differentially. And, of course, mm. when you increase the pressure in the chest cavity, the other thing that you do is it inhibits blood return to the heart. So patients mm. often will drop their blood pressure as well. So it is the, the focal mechanics to the lungs without having the whole body under pressure. With the whole body under pressure and under pressure with 100% oxygen, what you are doing is you are differentially changing the pressures of the gases. And one of the things with hyperbaric oxygen also that's occurring is that, you know, the way we oxygenate our lungs is by another gas law. It's called Henry's law, which says that the amount of a gas in solution, i.e. our blood, is proportional to the pressure of that gas in the air that's interfacing with it. In other words, the pressure of the gas in our lung sacs, the little airways. And so what happens is we progressively increase the pressure of oxygen by putting people on a nasal cannula. Then we put them on a mask. Eventually they get a hundred percent oxygen. So their maximum atmospheric pressure of oxygen trying to force its way through this damaged lung tissue into the blood. Well, Henry's law says, what's the only limit here? It's atmospheric pressure. Why can't you go above atmospheric pressure and get more oxygen in. And that is exactly what hyperbaric oxygen is doing. We just extend the upper end of it now by increasing the atmospheric pressure. And with it, by Henry's law, there's more gas, oxygen, in the air in the lung sacs, and more of it gets into the blood. 
it can now penetrate. But again, there's a, there's a separate effect of pressure alone that our genes respond to. And it has to be a whole body pressurization to do that. Th- think of our atmosphere. Think of arthritic patients. We have pressure sensors throughout our body. A New Orleans arthritic patient can usually tell you when there's a, a front, a weather front approaching the Texas-Louisiana border, or, you know, maybe a little closer than that. But I'm just saying, you know, 100 miles away, you can feel the changes in atmospheric pressure. And the daily variations are around 10%. I mean, daily meaning not today to tomorrow. But I'm just saying, with fronts and passing and uh, coming and going, the changes in atmospheric pressure can be as much as 10%, even greater with hurricanes um, and tornadoes. But uh, patients feel that, and they've been telling their doctors for years and years that the weather affects them. Now there are multiple studies that show this. One of them most recently done with you know handheld apps through phones <clears throat> where people document their symptoms, where they are, and then they later track on those days by the data that was input, their symptoms, what the actual barometric pressure was right in their location. And what they've shown is that as atmospheric pressure changes, our joints sing, especially if you're arthritic. So we are very sensitive to pressure. All living organisms are. And that is a separate component of what is going on when we're putting people in a chamber and treating them with coronavirus lung infection. It's the effect of pressure as well. It's just when you localize it, to the lungs as a blast from a ventilator, it is damaging, potentially damaging. And it just, again, as a layperson, it just, it, it amazes me at the idea of getting how, how doctors seem to be opposed, I'll use that word, that's my opinion, opposed to the idea of assisting the immune system by getting pressure, by getting I hyperbaric oxygen process by getting that oxygen into the tissue so that the body has a better opportunity to defend itself by being oxygenated versus this, uh, this, as you've described it, counter idea of putting oxygen into the lungs under pressure, lungs that are already irritated, lungs that are already inflamed. You're just, and then you're restricting blood flow. I mean, it's, as you penciled it out, it's like, really? I'm just like a guy over here talking into a microphone, and yet this seems to make so much sense. It's just, it blows my mind every time we talk. Well, it's true. I mean, it seems stupidly simple. And as I wanted to say in my book, and the publisher and editor have strenuously objected to, only doctors don't get it. And the the reason is we have been so schooled in a type of thinking and a way of thinking and simultaneously been not schooled in pressure biology, which is what this is and hyperbaric oxygen and compounded with the idea that this was thoroughly disproven years ago. It's non-science. It's, I mean, one of the, the top critical care medicine doctors at our institution for 20 years now, amongst the faculty and everybody he talks about hyperbaric medicine with has been calling hyperbaric oxygen 
hocus pocus. Not only has he not read anything about this, he refuses to. And unfortunately, he is a, quote, thought leader. And his opinion, and this is very uh, very key, it is his opinion. And let me be more specific, uninformed opinion, which Mm. is given credibility. And this is often the case. The doctor with the booming voice and the, you know, uh, overriding confidence and the (laughs) uh, presumed credibility on the medical staff often almost dictates dogma. Uh, And it's a a major inhibition to uh, advance of medicine, which, and I'm going to put this in here just as a, a plug for a personal thought, but it's one of my my central tenets about how the health care system needs to be reformed. We need to have an equal number of lay people in the medical profession making decisions about reimbursement of medical therapies, you know, what the public prioritizes and wants and so on, because we, we have these very negative influences within the medical profession that really prevent the advance of therapies, often because of money issues, uh, you know, conflicts of interest and so on. And the public needs to be involved. The, the, the day is gone where doctors are considered to have exclusive and all-powerful, almost universal knowledge on medical matters. There's another show. It is. <laughs> That's a whole other show. You, uh, yeah. Several years ago, I did a series of interviews with um, Gwen Olson, who had been a pharmaceutical rep for maybe teens of years. And one day she woke up and went, oh, my God, what am I doing? She saw the effect of a particular drug that she introduced to the senior care industry. And she saw the results of that from influencing doctors all these years. And she really talked about how the pharmaceutical rep was really trained in a spy school kind of way to infiltrate into a doctor's ability, ability to influence doctors. Oh, and so at some point she stepped uh, away from that and went, Oh my God, I can't do this anymore. This is horrific. And wrote a great book about the experience and then left the country um, for all the positive, for all the obvious reasons. But there's that whole influence of, as you say, the, you get that one doctor who sounds authoritative and everybody listens to it because he has the voice and the thing and the stuff. And the next thing you know, it's like, no, that's for, you know, forbidden. And it, and it flashes me back to the others. And we talked about this last week that I had interviewed your mentor, Richard Neubauer, 20 years ago. So that's why I'm partially, you know, it was back then it was a battle for him 20 years ago. And it seems like you're still in the same battle or not battle, kind of a battle of, Again, from the layperson's view, my view over here, let's say with TBI or Corona or whatever it is, you have somebody have an experience with HBOT, they come out, they're pink and bright and oxygenated and feel better. And once you begin to feel better, your immune system, I mean, all that cascade effect of feeling better, just that alone of feeling better is so beneficial to the immune system. It just, it all makes way too much sense. I guess I'm yes. confused. Yeah. Well, it, it does. Again, it, it butts heads with these issues that we've talked about. Yeah. Um, 
And um, uh, that's why your radio show is so important. And the, the media and television and so on is that the, this is the primary way that this has to be disseminated. The public has to become informed about it because what's happening now is the public is is almost demanding medical therapies uh, of physicians. You know, they're the ones who are putting the information in front of their doctors because with the Internet, they're now out there searching for everything. I get the phone calls from the ICUs now. All of these drowned children, the parents call and want to find out about it. And it's a fight just to get the physicians in the hospitals to put the children on intermittent room pressure oxygen through a little nasal cannula. Um, And it butts up against egos and all sorts of things. But what's happening is more and more doctors are seeing this and being uh, affected by it. The information is there to where now we're, I've got uh, some physicians at a very, very prominent medical center who are telling the parents of drowned children, as soon as you get out of here, go over to New Orleans and, and get hyperbaric oxygen for your child because we really have no treatment. So it, it's wow. happening. It's slow, but it's the, you play a crucial part in this, which is why I was so willing and happy to be a part of your show. Yeah, thank you. And it does. It's just I, I, as I said, that's a whole other show where we'll have a conversation talking about the idea of having lay people on panels on boards to add ideas of why aren't we doing this? Why why don't we have HBOT at this hospital? Why don't we? Because it's again, I understand there's a dogmatic belief that it doesn't work because who knows who's funding the research saying that it's not working. That's a whole other show. But it just it, it blows my mind that it so obviously is having benefit, and and the other side of it is is there harm? Can you OD on HBOT? Is there? Yes. I mean, oxygen is an oxidator eventually to the system. So there's that side of I'm not saying HBOT is an oxidant. I'm just saying oxygen is known as an oxidizer. How does that factor into the conversation of pressurized oxygen, or does it? It very much does. Uh, We're using it as a drug. It has drug-like properties. That's that you can consider it almost a drug effect, this whole activation of our genes. And uh, as with any drug, there is underdosing and overdosing. There's just right dosing. And that's what this is all about, because the responsiveness of a person and their disease to hyperbaric oxygen can change as the disease and does change as the disease unfolds from the immediate time of injury or illness to the convalescent phase and different doses of hyperbaric therapy are differentially effective at different points in this process. So it's a matter of delivering things, uh, delivering the hyperbaric oxygen correctly. And I'll give you an example. Yes, you can overdose. I have two parents. I, I have a retrospective, Institutional Review Board approved study. Actually, it's uh, uh, it's currently I closed it temporarily, but it was to review all of the cases of oxygen toxicity and overdosing uh, that I had heard about, seen, or you know had become aware of. And in this group are 
two children whose parents put uh, hard shell chambers in their homes and overtreated these children to the extent that they developed seizures, and both of these children died of seizures. Um, and while it is an extreme situation, the point is that you can harm. And these were kids, uh, you know, whose parents, I mean, what they had done was completely irresponsible. They, they don't know how to operate chambers. They don't know about hyperbaric oxygen. And, um, you know, it was, it was a terrible tragedy. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the answer is uh, you can overdo this. And it's, it's well known in hyperbaric medicine. You can, uh, you can overdose patients on it. If we look at, for instance, carbon monoxide poisoning, uh, acute carbon monoxide poisoning, when you treat those patients at the highest pressures, up to 3% of them will have an oxygen toxicity seizure. Hmm. Now, the, treatment, the treatment's better than the disease still, but I'm saying there is risk and there is dose risk with those uh, acute treatments. It's a very small percentage overall, uh, but still, uh, there is some risk compared to other medical therapies, to surgeries, and so on. I mean, overall, the risk of doing this therapy is far, far less, which is why we're also in a much lower malpractice category. It's generally a safer <laughs> yeah. therapy. No, true. It's, yeah. uh, you know, the risk. So I don't want to scare people and, and give the wrong impression, but more of the impression that uh, you want to do things right. Uh, and there's a way to do it right. And how do people, can you get a certificate? Or how do you become a HBOT practitioner or a, I don't know what even to call it. I mean, you're, you're a medical doctor. So it, right. being that you're a medical doctor, does that mean that you could by choice use HBOT or do you have to go to a process to be qualified to use HBOT? That's a little bit of the problem uh, oh. because currently, for instance, to be able to bill for and obtain reimbursement through Medicare and Medicaid, uh, you have to, all you have to do is go to a 40-hour physician hyperbaric course. That's it. Hmm. Now, wow. you know, there are, there are for hyperbaric oxygen, uh, hyperbaric medicine, undersea and hyperbaric medicine is a formal subspecialty now under two different specialties, emergency medicine and preventive medicine, such that you can go do a hyperbaric medicine fellowship, which here at LSU, we have the largest one in the country, and uh, I was the medical director of it for 19 years. Um, but we can train up to five doctors a year. Unfortunately, there are only 10 of these in the United States. And the numbers that can be turned out is like 20 doctors a year. It's a full one-year subspecialty fellowship. Wow. So the, the training programs are limited. Um, so doctors end up you know, kind of doing this on the fly and and trying to learn about it and so on. And this is partly why the results are uneven. Uh, you know, you can get good results and you can get no results. <laughs> um, and how do we, how do we validate, let's say uh, I find somebody doing HBOT in my area how do I know that they are, is it called certified or what, what is that called? Well, that, that fellowship is a, a true, it's a subspecialty board. 
to board certification. There are other uh, certifications uh, that are offered by medical society, the hyperbaric medical societies. Um, but it's like anything uh, in medicine or in any walk of life. You know, you have to do your research and go talk to the people and find out what their experience and training and so on is and uh, see if you can find others that have been treated there. And I, w- I would caution people to be aware that we had to put a disclaimer on our website because there are so many of these facilities that are misappropriating my name and association with me and telling would-be patients that they talk to me weekly and they're doing exactly what I do and they follow, quote, my protocols and so on. And it's flatly dishonest. Uh, but you, you have to go and find out and, and you can call us uh, uh, about it and find out if I'm associated with any people. You have to go in and it's just like, I hate to say this, but shopping for a car or any other good or service, you have to you have to do a little due diligence and homework and gather what you can from the internet, um, from available information, published articles. There's just more and more information coming out on hyperbaric medicine. And then hopefully go to a place where a hyperbaric medical professional, that's been the problem with so many of these places. They're run by businessmen. They may have a nominal doctor, but you'll never see them. And mm-hmm. you need to go someplace where you, you're, you're seeing uh, a doctor, somebody who has some knowledge of what they're doing and, and what you're going to address and, and so on. And if you've got risk factors for it, there are some people that this is a little risky for, you know, based on their health problems. So, for instance, coronavirus patients, I only recommend this be done in the hospital because those, that's where the sick patients are. And I, I see us heading toward the end, but I have to ask yeah. just for clarification, is there benefit to soft-sided chambers or is that a completely separate conversation? No, the, the answer is yes, there is. Okay. Clearly is. And it just depends on the condition that you're treating. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of claims made with it based on the research done with the hard shell chambers. But there's an increasing amount that's showing benefit even at this in the lower dosing range, very clearly. It's all about the dose and the pressure. Okay. And and so I've seen some chambers where they're just pressurizing ambient air and or I've seen other chambers where they're pressurized and they're adding then pure oxygen. Is there gonna be benefit? improve benefit from having pressure with real oxygen or medical grade oxygen? Yes, there can be. And that's what I I can see with the QEEG I do on the patients in the chamber. You can see differences in these doses immediately live on brain function. And there is, there are clear cut differences uh, between, uh, you know, the different doses for a, a given condition. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, okay. We'll be doing another show soon. Uh, we're at that point where I have to ask you, where would you like people to find out more information about your work? Uh, you have a boatload of information on your site, so please give them that That's information the to the place. listeners. Yeah. Right. HBOT.com. 
is probably the best place. There's a lot of information we put there. They can Google me and you'll uh, bring up the instant access articles that are available. Uh, that one I like to refer people to is the 2015 one on oxygen pressure and gene therapy in medical gas research because it explains this, this whole genetic uh, discussion and pressure and oxygen. And then the randomized trial that we just published on traumatic brain injury, which got overwhelmed by all this coronavirus news. But here now is uh, another randomized trial showing hyperbaric oxygen works in chronic traumatic brain injury. All right, that may be a force show. Uh, okay, <laughs> I have to stop because this could go sure. on for hours. Um, that was uh, excellent. Thank you oh, so much. Oh, and The Oxygen Revolution, my book. There's a good source of information. Oh, that's right. Oh, I forget. Right. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> I forgot about the book completely. I, yep. I do highly recommend The Oxygen Revolution. We talked, as I say, I put in the show notes last week's show where we talked about a broader spectrum of things. But really, The Oxygen Revolution is a great resource for all sorts of you know, HBOT and the effects that it can have in, in many different kinds of conditions. And, and we haven't even talked about longevity, and we're not going to now. I'm sorry, everybody. No. That's a hook, though, for later. Um, everybody have a great rest of the week, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>